Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the dungeon into which all new planning information is dumped, and extract the key things you need to know. Today, we're joined by our reporter, Samantha Eckford. Hello, Sam. Hi. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnights and what it means for you. We'll consider the appointment of Simon Clark as the new Secretary of State for Leveling Up. What does it mean for planning? We'll also explore the planning implications of other key ministerial appointments in Liz Truss's new team. And with further delays to local plans continuing to emerge, we'll examine the current state of plan making. And in our deep dive section, which this week is sponsored by the law firm Shoesmiths, we'll be exploring more of the implications for planning of Liz Truss's installation as Prime Minister. By the end of the show, you should know enough not to be ambushed at your next pre-application meeting. So, time to get out the reading glasses. Ready to venture in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in room 106. Ah, looks like some fresh documentation in the local plan section. It's probably mostly statements from councils explaining why they're delaying publication. Ah, yes, maybe. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? Well, firstly, we have a new Secretary of State for Housing and Levelling Up. So, earlier this month, Simon Clark was appointed the Secretary of State for the Department for Levelling Up Housing and Communities, or DELERC, as it's commonly known, by the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. He replaced Greg Clark, who only served in the role for two months during the final throes of Boris Johnson's premiership. And Clark, with an E, becomes the eighth appointment to the role since the Conservatives came to power in 2010. He's a Red Wall MP for Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland, which is actually neighbours Greg Clark's constituency. And he was first elected to Parliament in 2017 when he took the seat from Labour. OK, and what do we know about his planning track record? So Simon Clark actually has previous experience with the department, having served as a Minister of State for Regional Growth and Local Government in the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, as it was known then, between February and September 2020. In 2018, he called for the government to relax Greenbelt rules in a paper where he called for the freeing up of Greenbelt land for development within a half-mile radius of stations where there are no special environmental protections He said, across England, this small release of land would create enough land supply for at least 1.5 million new homes, while leaving 98% of all existing Greenbelt land entirely untouched. And he wrote, as it stands, the Greenbelt is an arbitrary and increasingly damaging holdover from 70 years ago. It's currently preventing a generation from owning their own homes, pushing up the cost of living, increasing the tax burden and damaging the environment. And he goes on to say that releasing Greenbelt land is the single most important change we could make. Earlier this year, he also publicly backed on Twitter his predecessor Michael Gove's plans for um, changes to the planning system, which included giving residents more say in local design codes and the possibility of so-called street votes, which both of these are measures that have been included in the levelling up and regeneration bill. And again, he talked about the importance of building new homes and said, we have to take on the curse of nimbyism and have a grown-up conversation. So he said he comes across there as a very, um, someone from the sort of deregulatory wing of the Conservative Party who believes that, you know, planning restrictions should be lifted to increase housing supply. However, by July, he'd sort of slightly changed his tune when he tweeted support for 
Liz Truss in the um, Tory leadership campaign when she pledged to scrap top-down Stalinist housing targets, which is a, a reference to centrally issued local housing need figures. Okay, so he's he's somebody who's who has sounded fairly sort of keen to remove uh, barriers to development in, in the past, but um, he's obviously part of a government which has uh, promised to be uh, very protective of the green belt and has promised to, to take away um, the current method of trying to uh, ensure that housing need is is met. So, w- what approach do you think he'll take to the job? Well, we spoke to some commentators and political insiders about this recently. And they say that Clark is an advocate of devolving power to local areas, and that he's unlikely to embark on radical planning changes. And they expect that a key priority for him will be revising national planning policy to set out a new method for councils to assess their local housing need, which you've just referred to. They think that the ministerial appointments in Delurk, including Clark and some of the others, which we'll discuss in more detail later, show that the priority will continue to be the levelling up agenda rather than housing, which it very much seemed to be undergo. As I said, few think he's likely to embark on radical planning deregulation in the short term, particularly given the 2019 Conservative Party election manifesto promise to protect the Greenbelt, which obviously runs headlong into his previous comments about um, freeing up Greenbelt land. So in the meantime, in planning terms, he's likely to focus on pushing through the uh, levelling up bill, which is still going through Parliament, and delivering the promised revisions to the MPPF, which our readers will remember, had originally been promised to have been done by this summer before the, um, the Johnson government went down. Commentators also felt that the revisions to the MPPF are likely to be changed to include Truss's campaign promise to change local housing needs figures or targets, as she called them, and another planning priority that they expect Clark to have is resolving a nutrient neutrality crisis, especially given that his his constituency is one of those areas that's affected by it. Okay, what has he actually done so far in in the in the short time that he's been in the job? Well. One of the first comments that the new Prime Minister Liz Truss said in the House of Commons, her first Prime Minister's questions, was that she was expecting Clark to look into curtailing the power of the planning inspectorate, saying it's too easy for the body to overrule local authorities. And she said, it's certainly an issue I'm expecting my Secretary of State for Housing to look at. So certainly that's going to be, that sounds like that's going to be a key task for him. There's been no further details on what exactly that will involve. But a couple of days later, Clark himself made some comments in an interview with the radio station LBC. He said that the government should move away from top-down housing targets. And he said these poison the relationships between government and local communities. And he promised to create some rational incentives to aid the delivery of new homes. So there he seems to be echoing the comments made by Truss in her election campaign. He said that we absolutely need as a country to build more homes He said that totally unfair high house prices are shutting out a generation of young people to own their own home, which is frankly a national scandal. He also said we can't also be hammering communities with these targets in a way which, as I say, leads to a very adversarial relationship from the get-go. And he says we need to create some rational incentives to deliver the housing that we need where we need it. I'm going to be saying a lot more about that in the course of the weeks ahead. It's a priority for government but so is also candidly providing reassurances for communities about how we're going to do that. 
So obviously this was all said before the passing of Her Majesty. So since then, in the last two weeks, we've um, sort of government has paused, but we can expect now that things are back up and running to um, hopefully hear more about that in the next couple of weeks. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for that. So what about other ministerial appointments? Which are the significant ones, starting with the levelling up department? Okay, so elsewhere in the housing department, we've had the departure of the former housing and planning secretary, Marcus Jones, who arrived alongside Greg Clark. He'd only been there for two months. We've also had Eddie Hughes, who was the uh, junior minister for rough sleeping and housing. He's resigned. And in their place, we've had Lee Rowley, who is taking over housing and planning brief. So we actually got an exclusive scoop on that last week from a good source. And it was confirmed yesterday by Simon Clark that Lee Rowley would be the new housing minister. We've also got Dehenna Davison, who joins as a junior minister, and Paul Scully and Leah Nietzsche, who were appointed in July. I think they're either all or, or many of them are, are northern MPs, so so-called Red Wall MPs, which some commentators have um, pointed out it seems to be a sort of statement of intent from um, from the government. Okay, and briefly, what do we know about Rowley? So. We don't know loads, but he did co-author a paper for Ian Duncan Smith's think tank, the Centre for Social Justice, which called for wholesale reforms to the housing system with housing policy freed from overbearing and confused central control so it could respond to shifting local needs. And interestingly, that seems to reflect the comments made by Simon Clark about local housing needs and it not being top-down, centrally imposed, but rather giving communities more of a say. He was elected the Tory MP for North East Derbyshire on 8th of June 2017. He's campaigned against fracking, which is interesting, which may put him at odds with the new Prime Minister, who recently declared she would lift the moratorium on fracking. And if he takes on the planning brief, he may make decisions on calling applications and recovered appeals involving shale gas exploration projects, which is going to be interesting. Okay, and can you just give us a, the headline on um, appointments outside of DLUC? Yes. So, firstly, we've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is the new Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And he takes on, uh, and that includes a number of planning responsibilities, including making decisions on large energy projects that are considered under the um, Nationally Significant Infrastructure Project or NSIP regime. He also oversees the six energy national policy statements. Then we have Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who's the new Secretary of State for Transport. And again, she'll be responsible for making decisions on large NSIP transport projects, including road and rail projects and airports. And then finally, at the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, commonly known as DEFRA, we have Ranil Jaya-Wardener. And um, his brief includes the power to designate national policy statements uh, for hazardous waste, wastewater and water resources. And importantly, he'll also be implementing measures introduced by the Environment Act, some of which are of key importance for planners, including the impending requirement for biodiversity net gain in all new projects. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. Now, um, I'm turning to you, um, Sam, to talk about local plans, because it's been uh, an eventful last couple of weeks, I understand. Yes, it has. So within the last fortnight, a further three councils have delayed their local plan timetables. So first was Hinckley and Bosworth, who delayed the submission of their draft plan following legal advice. They'd been due to submit the emerging plan for examination in March this year. 
They said that the decision was based on several factors, including new national requirements and housing targets, uncertainties around government statements on proposed changes to the planning system, and the need for further work by local agencies to assess and advise on local impacts, such as highways and education. They also cited statements made by Truss, which indicated a possible removal of the requirement for centrally set housing targets, the duty to cooperate, and requirements to maintain a five-year supply. Okay, interesting. Um, and, uh, and, and a couple of others as well, I understand. Yeah, so next, on the 13th of September, we reported that Basingstoke and Dean Council in Hampshire were postponing the Regulation 18 consultation on their draft plan. The council's local development scheme had stated that the council was due to carry out the consultation either in autumn this year or the following winter. The leader of the council had said that the authority had been working on a new housing need figure that departs from the centrally issued standard method figure and also cited recent comments made by Truss about Stalinist top-down housing figures, which he said suggested that local need should be decided locally. The next was Uttlesford, who also postponed its Regulation 18 consultation. This was the third time they've postponed this consultation, which was originally due to take place in early 2022. The leader of the council simply said that the delay was because there is more work to be done before the consultation can begin. Okay, and uh, any other significant plan-making news in the last couple of weeks? Yes, so in Welland Hatfield, there's been a continuation of a long-term disagreement between the council and the planning inspector over its housing need figure. The authority had submitted its draft plan, which included proposals for 12,000 homes between 2013 and 2032 in 2017. In July last year, the inspector had advised the council that 15,200 homes were in fact required and instructed the authority to provide a list of greenbelt sites to help it meet this target. After various letters to and fro, the inspector has now written to the council reaffirming his belief that the council need to meet the 15,000 home requirement. He said that the authority had used greenbelt sites to promote employment growth well beyond the needs of the borough's existing residents, while failing to identify sufficient land to meet its housing needs. In a statement, the authority said that it finds itself in an impossible situation with the option of either abandoning the document or allowing further greenbelt release. Okay. Is there anything that all these councils seem to have in common? Yeah, so the issue of standard methodology seems to be coming back again and again, and Truss's comments about essentially Stalinist housing figures appear to have heightened existing concerns. Okay, that's interesting. And and actually, we've seen in the last couple of weeks as well, we've seen Oxford come forward with much reduced proposal to put forward a local plan which doesn't meet the figure that the standard method would produce. Is that, is that right? Yes, they've published a preferred options draft of the local plan that proposes a capacity-based housing target. So what are the consequences for authorities that uh, might be considering delaying or withdrawing their, their plans? Well, as Well and Hatfield found out earlier this month, not having an up-to-date local plan can leave authorities vulnerable. We reported on the 7th of September that a planning inspector had allowed an appeal for 289 homes um, after finding that the council was persistently failing to meet the area's housing need and that the local plan homes requirement was hopelessly out of date and inadequate. Okay, so, you know, still clearly consequences for uh, for councils that, that don't get a plan in place, but obviously not sufficient to make many of them, or certainly a significant number, feel that those consequences outweigh the downsides of bringing forward uh, uh, their local plan on time. Okay, many thanks, Sam and John. Uh, John, I'm going to see you later to talk about your quirky story of the week. But for now, I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's Deep Dive, which in this edition is sponsored by the law firm Shoesmiths, 
and in which we'll be exploring more of the implications of Liz Truss's installation as Prime Minister. Bye for now. Bye. So now I need to find my way back to the corner of Room 106 where comment about political developments is gathered. Usually the opinions seem to just mysteriously accumulate in here, but they're brought here by lawyers, think tanks, professional bodies and so on. And I'm hoping that I might actually catch one or two of them down here and get a chance to pick their brains. Ah, I'm in luck. It's Ike EJ, Head of Housing, Architecture and Urban Space at the Policy Exchange. Hello. And Chris Rumfit, founder and chief executive of Field Consulting. Hi there. And Karen Howard, partner at our sponsors, Shoesmiths. Hello there. Welcome to Room 106. Uh, have you got a few minutes to discuss the implications of Trust becoming Prime Minister? Of course. Yes. Yeah, we do. Fantastic. In which case, could I ask you to briefly introduce yourselves? My name's Ike EJ, Head of Housing, Architecture and Urban Space at um, Policy Exchange Think Tank. I'm also a practising architect and for the previous 10 or so years was the architecture editor for two architecture magazines. And uh, obviously my interest is in architecture as a practical exercise, but also as a political policy driven pursuit as well. Many thanks, Ike. Uh, Chris? Hi, Chris Rumfit. I'm the founder and chief executive field consulting. Um, We're political advisors and communications advisors to major developments on a whole host of projects, residential, commercial, mixed use all over the country. My background is in politics. I worked in 10 Downing Street for Tony Blair. And so that whole politics of planning, which as we all know is so difficult, is is really my area. Great. Thank you. And Karen? Hello. I have been in planning for over 35 years. I started off in local government and um, I now continue my career as a lawyer in planning and regeneration for Shoesmiths. I act for house builders, developers, landlords. I also do work um, against enforcement and look at the politics of any situation, giving time really to the local people that want to complain about development. Fantastic. Many thanks. Okay, well, let's get on and uh, discuss the planning commitments that Liz Truss has made and her team have made and some of the implications. First of all, to look at housing, Truss has committed to, open quotes, abolish the top-down, Whitehall-inspired Stalinist housing targets. She told the Daily Express during her leadership campaign, I'll put power back in local councillors' hands who know far better than Whitehall what their communities want. And uh, since he's been appointed, the new levelling up secretary, Simon Clark, told LBC that the government should move away from the top-down housing targets that, he says, poison the relationship between government and local communities, and that he would create some rational incentives to deliver the housing we need where we need it. So the questions I was going to ask you as a group is... How do you think the government will take these commitments forward and what could the implications be? Does this mean an end to government oversight of the numbers of homes a local authority plans for? Does it mean that councils will be left to their own devices or does it just mean a tweak to the standard method? And do you have any thoughts on the kind of incentives that uh, Simon Clark might be considering? So, Ike, can I come to you first on, on this? 
Well, um, the first thing is to voice a little bit of scepticism, I suppose. Um, look, we've been down this road before. Michael Gove, who was the last Secretary of State for um, Housing and Leveling Up, he didn't abandon housing targets, but it was clear that he was very interested in the kind of housing that was created, whether you call it beauty or sustainable communities. He thought that was as important, if not more important, than um, the housing numbers. And simply because we are in a housing crisis, simply because we have a crisis of limited supply, not across the country, but in obviously in, in the southeast and other places, I don't really think it's credible for government to completely abandon its involvement in housing numbers and housing delivery and leave it entirely to local communities. One of the other reasons why I think that that doesn't really work is because housing is one of those things whereby you have a national benefit, but that national benefit might not always be translated into local benefit. To take a kind of a big infrastructure example, something like HS2, um, you can argue about whether you think it's um, worthwhile or not, but the government very clearly thinks there's a national benefit. But if you've got a train track ramming through your village or beside it, then you might not see the local benefit. And that's often the case with housing. So we do have a housing crisis. We do have an undersupply and we need to increase the numbers of housing built. So I don't think it's feasible for the government, as it says, to completely abandon housing targets or completely leave everything to local authorities, because it may sound good in, in, in terms of a kind of soundbite to liberate um, local um, um, planning officers and authorities, but it doesn't work on a national level, and governments have to think of national level. Oh, thank you very much, Ike. Uh, Chris, any thoughts about what they might actually do uh, if they're getting rid of the so-called Stalinist targets? Yeah, well, first to say, I mean, I almost entirely agree with Ike. I think it's really important to measure comments in by the context in which they're said and in a leadership contest to the Daily Express, you know, all of the bells are ringing for me that this is something we should take with a with a pinch of salt. The emphasis maybe, you know, to make sure on a promise Maybe she can abolish Stalinist housing targets. I'm sure no one's in favour of anything that's Stalinist. Um, <laughs> I would share my scepticism of how this could be uh, implemented. The standard method has obviously been unpopular, and I suspect this is more about changing how ch housing targets are arrived at, potentially ending the standard method rather than the abolition of targets a tool which, as, as Ike said, would be disastrous for housing delivery. And given the government's number one priority is growth, 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 I don't think stymieing housing deliveries um, fits with that. OK. And um, Karen, your thoughts and, and, and any thoughts actually on the kind of incentives that Simon Clark might be considering to help? Well, it's difficult. I agree with both um, the comments that have been made so far. I think we do have a crisis in this country and I think that housing needs to be delivered faster. I act for major house builders that have to go through so many hoops from local authorities before they get even to a planning permission. And there's lots of, if you like, tricks along the way that you have to deal with, including Section 106 agreements, SIL, etc. I do think that the government needs to think a bit more about local community needs and they need to look at, I agree with Ike, on the type of housing that's being provided. And I do think you don't necessarily need to have four bedroom houses everywhere, which is what has been required in some of our instances. So I do think that the target overall is good to have. 
because everyone's got to aim for something. But I would just encourage anything like funding or, you know, being able to incentivize by loans and, you know, more public investment um, in order to speed everything up. You know, and maybe flexibility on capital receipts, how councils use their money. I'm old enough to remember council housing. That wasn't such a bad thing, you know, depending on the type of housing that you need and you require. People just need houses. I did think it was useful what Liz Trust said about um, rental levels. She was saying if you use people's rent, an example of them being able to afford a mortgage might help. But I'd, I'm not quite sure what she was thinking in terms of translating that to um, the mortgage companies that would actually be lending the money. OK, then a couple of other things she said related to housing that I'll just quickly um, read out and, and ask you maybe if everybody can just very briefly comment on these. She said during her campaign that in cities we should be building up more and making more of the space we have. And then on rural development, she said she was a supporter of allowing incremental expansion of villages rather than just these massive targets that land on the back of local councils. Any thoughts on those comments and um, what they might mean in terms of what Truss's government does going forward? On the urban point, I mean... I think most people would agree that urban densification from a sustainability point of view, and it's generally more acceptable there, is is definitely a good thing. Politically, the Conservatives don't really control very many city centres, so it's also a political pathway of least resistance. There is a challenge, though, in terms of how much difference that really make to overall housing delivery nationally. And Obviously, the fact that, you know, by far and away, the biggest urban environment in the UK, London, is is under control of a Labour mayor and with a London plan in place, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly, through national policy, there's stuff they can do to, to influence that. But none of those are quick levers to pull. I think the challenge also is the environmental challenge, because when you look at tall buildings and you look at all the environmental impact assessments around that, it's not always easy just to make things taller, bigger. They have an effect on the environment. And I think that is something that needs to be looked at as well. I agree with both those positions. I'd add the caveat, though. Yeah, while I completely agree that densification is the way forward, I'm not sure if that's what Liz Truss means when she says building up. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. But if she thinks that loads more tall buildings scattered across the country is going to solve the housing crisis, if I'm taking building up as literally more stories of buildings, and I don't think that's going to work. London's had huge experience with tall buildings over the past 10 years. We still have a housing crisis. We still have far lower densities than cities like Paris and Barcelona. We have to get intelligent about what delivering density means and understand that it's not just about plonking tall buildings everywhere. It's understanding urban grain, responding to urban grain in a way that maximises the delivery of housing. And I think that rarely happens. Okay, so one thing that caused a lot of interest was Liz Truss's comments at her first PMQs when she said she was expecting her housing secretary to look into curtailing the power of the planning inspectorate, saying it's too easy for the body to override local authorities. It might seem that this is what this is saying is she's going to make it harder for PINs to enforce national government policy on local authorities, which to me doesn't seem to make sense. But Karen, can you make sense of what the government might be thinking of in terms of how it might sort of adjust that relationship between local authorities and the inspectorate? 
I was puzzled when I first saw the comment, but I think that what Liz Truss is referring to is local plan making and making sure that local plans don't fail on the basis of soundness when there are certain areas that could be worked on and worked through and to make sure that PINs are very sort of informed about where they need to require more evidence. And I do think it is about maybe the government speaking to PINs more and giving more guidance to their inspectors on local plan making. Because my experience of, of working in the local plan system is a lot of local authorities will work very hard to get their plans in place, but then they find themselves derailed by um, questions from PINs. So I think there has to be much more working together. I think that's what Liz Truss is talking about. I don't think it's making it harder for PINs. I, I think what she's trying to say is that more proactive work needs to happen so that PINs guide local authorities through the local plan system. And I would use Brentwood as an example of a, a local plan that the inquiry, the inspectors were very good there. So I can't imagine that she's talking for the whole of PINs. OK. What about the decision-making side? Uh, if part of this is about um, adjusting the relationship, how that works when local plans are being examined, do you think part of it is also about making inspectors less likely to overturn council refusals of schemes? I think I'm, I'm sort of... Reassured to hear Cowan's optimistic um, interpretation of it. My 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 view is it. I I wouldn't read too much into those comments at PMQs. It felt a little like, you know, uh, a prime minister literally one day into the job giving a a very long-standing backbencher, I think the longest-standing conservative backbencher, the answer he wanted to hear. I, I I'm not sure in terms of translation into policy, we'll see, we'll see that much on this uh, area. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with both. In terms of Karen, I, I share Karen's puzzlement about how exactly watering down the backstop, if you like, the backstop enforcer of national planning policy works to having a credible national planning policy, to be honest. I can't see how that can work. And I also agree with Chris that it probably was more political expedience than a thought-out policy to kind of strip pins of their power. But but I do find it interesting. P pins are almost, they symbolise the conflict between kind of national planning policy and local planning reality. And um, it's not the first time there's been friction between pins and um, local government and central government. And I do think, hopefully along the lines Karen suggests, that there is room to rationalise a relationship, but not, I think, in the way Liz Truss implied of literally stripping pigs of their power or, or dramatically reducing it. I, I don't think that's what's on the cards, hopefully. Let's move on to opportunity zones, which are one of Liz Truss's sort of big ideas that she um, talked up during her campaign. In a Telegraph column, she said, at the heart of my vision for levelling up, we will work with local communities to identify sites ripe for transformation across the country through lower taxes, reduced planning restrictions and red tape. These zones will open the floodgates to new waves of investment. They will become new hubs for innovation and enterprise in the spirit of historic towns like Bourneville and Saltaire. How significant do you think this sort of policy idea is? I think it's a good idea. 
and that's the first thing I'd say. I think I do share Christy's cynical sort of approach to some of the ideas that have been um, put forward. So if you look at Bourneville and Saltaire, they, they've stood the test of the time and they are kind of, you know, dreamland places that, that people talk about. I think that you can create local development orders in places where, you, where it's a good area to regenerate. That power exists already. And I do think that that would really reduce the red tape because obviously planning decisions are then made in accordance with the order, which means you don't have to go through the rigmarole of all the, the usual sort of planning application process. I do endorse the idea, but just how it will work in practice, because it does come down to, again, local authorities deciding whether they want to put forward that development order within a local plan process. So it's not a magic fix it overnight. It's a good idea, but it still has a way to go. Okay. Chris and Ike, any thoughts on this one? Guilty of name dropping. I had a conversation with Liz Truss a couple of years ago about uh, free ports, and she was a huge enthusiast for those, continues to be, and they've progressed. I think she'll probably put a bit more oomph into the development of those, and perhaps what we're looking at here is something of that same sort of agenda, but away from the ports, as it were. Do you think places are going to want to have these zones, Ike? Yes, to a degree. Yes, I think they will do. Um, as Karen says, I think it's, it's based on sound planning. They're good ideas. Historically, if we look at, say, the Isle of Dogs in London, um, to a degree, the Olympic Park as well, I believe, after the, after the Olympic Games, that development, and Albert Dock 2 in Liverpool, these are all good examples of that principle of opportunity zoning leading to good growth and good development. But um, I, I also do share um, a little, I mean, a lot of these mechanisms exist already, so that they are there. It's the way or the frequency with which they're applied, which maybe needs to be looked at. And the final thing, very quickly, I do find this subject interesting because Generic's abandoned planning reforms, a lot of them revolved around this principle of various zoning, almost a US idea of identifying certain areas for high development, other areas for low development. And basically, they were all killed off by um, the Amish by-election, essentially, because people thought politically it was too much of a, of a hot potato. So I'm interested that this is a potential reanimation of those ideas, but in the more kind of friendly language of enterprise zones and opportunity areas, but essentially is a move towards a more zoning approach to planning in a US style, as opposed to our more traditional empirical approach. And I find that interesting. Thanks, Ike. Thanks very much. Next is energy and infrastructure. And uh, Trust said at a hustings, our fields should be filled with our fantastic produce, whether it's the great livestock, the great arable farms, it shouldn't be full of solar panels, and I will change the rules to make sure we're using our high-value agricultural land for farming. She's also told MPs since becoming Prime Minister that the moratorium on fracking would be lifted where there is local support for it. She says we will make sure we exploit all the gas in the North Sea. And then on an infrastructure front, she has said we will build the Northern Powerhouse Rail. So, Chris, can I ask you for your thoughts on those sort of commitments that she's made? Yeah, energy and infrastructure is an area where I've done lots of work over the years. And I think it's a huge opportunity for her government. Growth, growth, growth is the mantra. We're going to hear a lot from that from Kwasi Kwarteng in the forthcoming mini budget. And there's a national consensus, I think, about the need for um, a much greater expansion of domestic energy generation. I take comments like the ones about solar panels with a pinch of salt. I think that's leadership contest 
uh, talk. But I think the other initiatives and really accelerating and putting support behind the building of energy infrastructure, transport infrastructure, they're classic things you do in an economic downturn anyway, which we are, are coming into. The problem they always have is they're perceived as important but not urgent. And I think now we recognise that they are urgent. And I think that's why the circumstances for really um, uh, accelerating, particularly on the energy generation side, getting things going, is um, the, the circumstances are coming together. Fracking, I think the key words are where there is local support for it. There may be national policy support, but the number of locations in which there's local support for it, I suspect, is relatively few. Yeah, I think the key word, Chris, local support, I, I don't know many people that support it. And Keir Starmer was very clear about the fact that there just isn't enough data and it would take far too long for it to make the changes that I think Liz Trust thinks are going to happen in terms of the overall energy requirements. I think that's the reason why fracking won't necessarily come back quickly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've got just two strap lines, local support as well. Um, I think that's, that's crucial. But also I'd say fabric first too, in terms of new housing built. I think it's something like, I think 80% of the housing we're going to have in 2050 is already here. So we really need to get intelligent about how we retrofit existing housing and ensure that new housing is as efficient, energy efficient as possible when it goes onto the market. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Ike. And our final topic, nutrient neutrality, the, the issue of development being stopped because of the impact it would have in terms of polluting protected watercourses with unwanted nutrients. And during the leadership campaign, a, a spokeswoman for the Trust campaign told Planning that we would remove Brussels red tape, such as nutrient neutrality, that has stalled housing projects without delivering on what it is designed to address. So, Karen, do you think the government will prioritise taking that promise forward? And, and if so, how do you think they'll do it? Well, I think there's a lot of shouting about it at the moment. Obviously, I act for housing developers and I'm very aware of the local areas, the 74 areas where this has become such a problem at all sort of stages of the planning process. Even sites that have been developed already are being stalled. So I'm a real advocate for it. The trouble is, is that the Brexit provisions, there will need to be some primary legislation done to bring that into line with domestic policy. So that can take some time. But I think that proactively, the government can do a lot more with Natural England in terms of what the overall approach would be to try and, and just put pressure on what would be a strategic solution. So some authorities are working very well, sort of East Anglia trying to come up with solutions. And I just think more work needs to be done on that in order to um, try and get things moving. Because it is, you know, we, we talked about housing at the beginning. This is fundamental to delivery. And I think the government need to act quickly. I think they do need to give some guidance on the Brexit application of the Habitat's regs. There's a lot to be done. And to be honest with you, if it is done quickly, that would solve at least some of the housing crisis. Just to say that the politics of it isn't completely straightforward, though. Obviously, massive public attention on water quality issues at the moment. And what they'll be worried about is, you know, Lib Dems on their flank championing water quality issues, aligning it to what can be a fairly popular and populist NIMBY agenda. And the politics is not black and white on this one. 
No, and the environment, you know, the lobbying groups on the environment, I, I'm very aware that um, it's it's a big challenge. So whilst I'm I'm doing my let's be, you know, positive about this, I agree with you, Chris, it's certainly not straightforward. Yeah, I would just add, I'd agree with all of that. And for me, what's interesting about this, I think it's symptomatic of what we're going to be seeing a lot more of in this and future governments. And that's the clash between environmental requirements and, if you like, political reality. I mean, one of the best ways to um, achieve net zero would be to not build any housing, because housing, building housing causes a huge amount of carbon emissions. But we don't do, we're not going to do that, obviously, because we need housing. So there's going to have to be a balance between these things, which is going to take a very clever and diplomatic government to find. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. I'm going to have to leave you to deposit your uh, your contributions to the uh, comment on the on the trust premiership in room 106. But I hope to see you here again shortly. And uh, thank you very much for your contributions. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks again to Shoe Smiths for their uh, sponsorship of that section. Right, now to find John again, so he can select his quirky story of the week. John. Hello, Richard. So one of the stories we had of the past fortnight that's got a lot of attention from our readers is a story about an enforcement fine, and people always seem to be interested in enforcement fine stories. And it's about a company and its owner that must pay out almost £46,000 after being prosecuted for cutting down three protected yew trees. So the director of property firm Purity Properties Limited, Stephen Jagdeep Singh, received a £9,600 fine while his company was handed a £24,000 fine for soaring down the trees, according to a statement from Telford and Recon Council, which carried out the enforcement case. And the trees were at a nursing home he owned, the Priory Nursing Home in Wellington, Shropshire, and they were protected by a tree preservation order. So it just shows the uh, the dangers for developers of cutting down protected trees. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at Planning Resource. .co.uk and keep an eye out for our forthcoming Planning for Housing conference which is happening in November. Our thanks to producers Nav Powell from the Haymarket Studio and Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink and thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>